0: Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the Bible and that we can speak it at all. We think of our brothers and sisters in in South Korea, North Korea, in Sudan, in India, many places across the world where they are being killed for doing such a thing. Lord, we use this freedom to press into your heart that we wouldn't take it for granted, that we would love it and learn it and live it here in Whitehorse and beyond. And Father, if there's any here today who do not know you, Lord, would your words powerfully transform them? That they would follow you, God. That they wouldn't follow the Northern Collective or any fancy preacher or doctor. They would follow you alone, through Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So here we are in Genesis. And from the beginning to the end of Genesis, we see this reality of what is known as sin. These crimes against the perfect and good God. This rebellion, these crimes, sin. It's a reality. It's a reality in my life. It's a reality in your life. And we see this, this, the devastation of sin, which brought death and destruction and decay and chaos. But it's contrasted with this amazingly good God who didn't just say, okay, you're done, game over, goodbye. He's gracious in renewing the world to himself at every cost to himself. So despite the failures, the continued failures of people throughout Genesis, he's bringing all things anew. He's renewing all things to the way that they were meant to be. People were meant to be with the Father. They're meant to live and talk to God. You and I were made for God. But tragically, we've made our own gods in other things. Have you done that? Who do you follow? Do you follow God? In generation after generation, as these people continue to rebel and sin against God, God has made a promise to his people that I will renew all things. He made a promise to a man named Abraham that through him there would be descendants as numerous as the stars. And then we meet another man, Isaac, and then another man, Jacob, and we hear stories of their life. And so, so we've been hearing a lot about Jacob. Jacob is the central character of what we've been learning in the past few chapters And Jacob is a man who who follows God, who believes in God, who has amazing times of triumph, but amazing times of failure as well. And in chapter 34, last week, we learned that God had asked him to go to a, a certain land, Bethel. God tells Jacob, you need to go to this promised land. This is where you need to go. Take your family, take your livestock, take your household, and go there. But he doesn't quite go all the way there. He, he, he camps about 20 miles outside of Bethel, and it has devastating consequences. His, his half-hearted obedience, which is full disobedience, caused chaos and destruction. Chapter 34 is full of lust. Jacob's daughter is raped. It's full of murder. When Jacob's sons, two two sons find out that their sister Dinah had been raped, they go and kill numerous people in the city. It's a chapter full of deceit and lies and wretchedness. It's because Jacob did not obey God by entering into the land he commanded him to go. Chapter thirty-four is horrific. It is literally a godless chapter. If you're to go back and read Chapter 34, there's no mention of God whatsoever. He's not named as as Yahweh, as God, as any there's no mention of God in Chapter 34. But here we are in Chapter 35, and it's almost completely different than Chapter 34. We have several references to God. It's filled with references to God. There's 11 direct references to God in chapter 35. Chapter 34, there are none. So it's the story of renewal. Jacob's renewed relationship with his heavenly father. And God is renewing his world in the midst of the failures of humanity. God is renewing his world in the midst of... Of the failures of humanity. Do you believe that? That is our sole hope. Because if we look at our lives, if I look at my own life, I am a failure. And I continue to fail. I continue to fail my family, my Heavenly Father, and my church. But God is faithful to renew the world in the midst of my failure, in the midst of your failure. That's amazing grace. And how sweet is that sound. So here we are in chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother, Esau. So what's happening here is God is renewing our attitudes. God is renewing our attitudes. Jacob obeys God. Now partially, fully. Jacob stepped up and he took charge, and he's giving instruction to his people. Verse 2, so Jacob told everyone in his household, get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. What a contrast to our previous chapter, where when his sons had killed who knows how many people, Jacob's primary concern was his own well-being and his own reputation. But now, but now he's renewed. He commanded his people to get rid of all your idols, all the things that you were calling gods. Get rid of those. Purify yourselves. And put on clean clothing. Jacob commanded his people to change their clothes. That's a, unique, that's a unique phrase in the Old Testament. Nowhere else does that appear in the New Testament. Or Old Testament, sorry. Where there's this command from someone to change their clothes. Because it's symbolizing this renewal of their attitude from unimaginable horror. And almost a godless state to obedience to their God. There's a renewal. Verse 4, So they gave Jacob all their pagan idols and earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. As they set out, a terror from God spread over the people and all the towns of that area, so no one attacked Jacob's family. Eventually, Jacob and his household arrived at Luz, also called Bethel, in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel which means God of Bethel, because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Soon after this, Rebekah's old nurse, Deborah, died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called Alon Bacchus, which means Oak of Weeping. So from Shechem, Jacob and his people would travel to Bethel as a renewed people. And God renews His people. He renews us by making promises to His people. God renews by making promises to His people. Verse 9, Now that Jacob had returned from Paran Aram, God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. So right here, God transforms Jacob's name to Israel. But you're thinking, some of you, didn't that already happen? Didn't, didn't this strange wrestling match occur and his hip got put out of joint by this person that we realize is God? And then this person renames Jacob Israel? Didn't that already happen? Yes, it did, smart student of the Bible. Yes, God had already changed Jacob's name, but that was outside of the promised land. So right now, God is, in a sense, confirming and validating Jacob's new character and destiny with the name Israel inside of the promised land. Inside of the promised land. We continue, verse 11. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants, and I will give you the land I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. He's referring to Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. El Shaddai, God Almighty. The first use of this name, by the way, in the Bible, was in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. And this name, El Shaddai, is so great to say. I just will say it continually. El Shaddai signifies God's power and His sovereignty. His power and His sovereignty. That this God that we're speaking about, there is no other God like Him. He is all-powerful. He is totally in control, sovereign. El Shaddai. It describes the God who makes things happen by his mighty power alone. He is the one who fulfills every promise. It is El Shaddai, God Almighty, who now renews Jacob and his people. There is no other God other than God Almighty Himself. And in a world where it tells you there's multiple religions and multiple gods, it is a false statement. It is a false claim. There is one God, God Almighty, the God of the Bible. Everyone else is a false God. And God, El Shaddai, He promised royal descendants he promised royal descendants. First, he said that to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 verse 6. In Genesis chapter 17 verse 6 it says this, "I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them." There's this this promise of royal descendants. And God's amazing promise renewed Jacob's attitude to worship. God's amazing promise, God's amazing power renewed Jacob's attitude toward worship. Worship meaning that your highest thoughts, your highest affections, that your life, you give as a way to say thank you to God Almighty. That's where He's drawn to. That's what you and I were made for, is worship. Do you worship El Shaddai? Do you worship God Almighty? One way to find out is ask yourself, where does my time go? Where does my money go? And where do my thoughts go? In the sum of those three things, your thoughts, your time, and your money, That is your God. We're to worship God alone. Everything else is an idol. So now Jacob is in the place where he's supposed to be. He's worshiping with a heart that is right with God. And by returning to Bethel, and he's built an altar there, Jacob, he's acknowledging that God has been faithful to him unimaginably faithful to him. And he has a renewed attitude of worship. Verse 14, Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. Then he poured wine over it as an offering to God and anointed the pillar with olive oil. And Jacob named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because God had spoken to him there he's lifted to worship in church worship is not just song it's not just singing though it is helpful when you when your team wins or whatever what does it make you want to you want to dance and jump up and sing and clap? song is a good expression of the heart when it cannot express what it feels song is a good thing for that We do worship God through singing. But worship is marked by praising Him in spirit and in truth. And that's where Jacob is right now. He's praising God with his life and his actions. But God's renewal is not without pain and suffering. God's renewal is not without pain and suffering. Verse 16, Leaving Bethel, Jacob and his clan moved on toward Ephrath, but Rachel went into labor while they were still some distance away. Her labor pains were intense. After very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid. You have another son. Rachel was about to die, but with her last breath she named the baby ben Oni, which means son of my sorrow. The baby's father, however, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a stone monument over Rachel's grave, and it can be seen there to this day. Rachel died. And as I was reading this, remember, just thinking of a montage of this flashback with, you know, nice fluffy music and Rachel and, and Jacob meeting and Jake was willing to work for her father for seven years and all the stories and giggles they must have had and when the love of your life dies that is sad and I was sad when I read that Rachel died it's unimaginable to think of losing your wife or your spouse or a son or a daughter Rachel died And Rachel was the love of Jacob's life and died giving birth to another son. Benjamin is the first child to be born inside the promised land. What a moment of joy. And what a moment of sorrow. And Rachel's death just shows us the reality that death is is all around us. Death is a sad reminder that each of us, our lives are but a vapor. And death is an enemy. Death is not good. I was at the, I was at the deathbed of a, a lady just last week, and I was alone with her. She was gone. And I remember thinking, before I was a Christian, I would have looked at this and said, "How beautiful! How good it was that she died in the hospital bed, and how good it was that she's dead now, quietly, humbly." But death is not good. We do not. We should not celebrate death. Death is an enemy. Death is brought by our sin, by the sin of Adam. It has cursed the world, and the reason we know sin exists is because we die. If we don't die, there is no sin. But because there's sin, we need victory over sin. We need victory over death. When will that come? When people die, it is sad. It is not good. And Jacob named the new baby boy Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, even though Rachel... Tried to name him Ben Oni. That's a funny situation. I'm thinking in the hospital bed. If Caitlin, my wife, would be like, Carol will be here now. I was like, no, it's not going to be Carol. It's going to be Carolina. <laughs> and I win. But there's something, is, there's something that happened here when Jacob named his new baby boy Benjamin, son of my right hand, instead of Ben Oni, which means son of my sorrow. The name was meant to celebrate Rachel son of my right hand. Jacob had this renewed attitude of worship toward, toward God. But this new name, son of my right hand, is to celebrate Rachel. And, and Benjamin would become a favored son. He had this renewed sense of worship, but pain and suffering and death come with the territory. And many of us are too familiar with that. And we long for the day when there is no death. And God's renewing his world. He is, as we read through Genesis. Yet it occurs in the midst of people's sin. God's renewal occurs in the midst of people's sin. Verse 21. Then Jacob traveled on and camped beyond Migdal Eder. While he was living there, Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, had intercourse with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Jacob soon heard about it. Here Reuben believed that with Rachel's death, and Rachel had the servant Bilhah, Reuben believed that Bilhah would become the favorite. Now, we're in a very odd situation here. Jacob has two wives. He has Rachel and he has Leah. And so Reuben is the son of Leah. Leah was the not-so-beautiful daughter. Rachel was the super-beautiful daughter. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he wanted to marry Rachel. Rachel. But Leah and Rachel's father tricked Jacob, and now he's two wives. And Reuben is one of Leah's sons. So Reuben seduced his father's concubine, which is somewhat like a, like a surrogate mother and somewhat like a servant. Reuben slept with her to ensure that she would not rival his mom's position. He did this to take power from his father and wanted to give her, um, Rachel's servant Bilha the power. That's a little bit confusing and convoluted, but what's essentially happening there is that the sin... Reuben slept with his father's servant to take power from his father because he didn't want his mother to be seen as lowly. And he went and did that. God's renewing the world, but it's in the midst of people's sin. And the chapter continues. These are the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These are the names of the sons who were born to Jacob at Paran Aram. So Jacob returned to his father Isaac in Mamre, which is near Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had both lived as foreigners. Isaac lived for 180 years, Then he breathed his last and died at a ripe old age. Very ripe, apparently, 180. Mm -hmm. Joining his ancestors in death and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And now the death of Isaac marks the passing of one generation to the next. Whenever you read Genesis, the sections are broken up in... In phrases like, and these are the generations of. And so when you read something like that in Genesis, it means you're into a new section of generations. So those previous verses we just read in verses 23 and 26, they focus on the descendants of Jacob. But chapter 36 focuses on the descendants of his brother Esau. And the most important thing to realize in what we're about to read in chapter 36 is that these... Descendants of Esau will become known as the Edomites. And the Edomites will cause all kinds of problems for Israel. And if we trace the Edomites throughout the Bible to Esau's descendants, we can see that they are a descendant, they are a race who hated the people of God. So we have Jacob's descendants and we have Esau's descendants. And they will become enemies. You are either for God, or you are either against God. There is no neutrality when it comes to following God. You either follow Him, or you don't. Do you follow God? Do you follow God? Which team do you play for? There is no middle ground. And I've already said, all other religions are false, every single one of them, except the one of God Almighty. If you are in another religion, God is giving you an opportunity and an invitation to follow Him. We are either for God or against God. Which team, which team do we play for? Jacob's descendants will be on team God. And Esau's team, which we read about in verse 36, will be enemies of God. So now I'm about to read chapter 36 in its entirety. And this chapter is largely a genealogy, which you know if you've been here any amount of time. I love genealogies. I frame them in my home and put them next to my wedding photos. No, I don't. That's, that's outrageous. If you see that, you just take it down and you say, we need to talk. But I do like genealogies. And, and there's genealogies written in the Bible for a reason. Because they're sharing a historical, they're sharing a historical account. The Bible is true and it is historical. And we don't, share in these family interests anymore, like the, the original audience. We don't, we don't necessarily care about these lineages like the first audience would have had. But I'm still going to read it because I have a biblical rationale for this. I want you to hear my voice and be lulled to sleep by it. No, I'm kidding. Because in 2 Timothy a book in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. The first two words in that, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture. All Scripture. Even the not-so-fun-and-exciting parts of scripture we must interact with all of scripture not just the parts we like not just the parts that won't get us in trouble in Canada not just the parts that are exciting but all of it do you read all of it do you read the Bible at all all of it is profitable for our lives it is God's word what else would we rather do Why are we in another book? Unless the book is talking about this book. All of it. So chapter 36. It is going to feel... Actually, I don't want to project what this is going to feel like. I'm just going to read it. I am just going to read it. And you just sit there. (laughs) This, you can stand up actually. This is the account of the descendants of Esau. So now we're in chapter 36. Also known as Edom. Esau married two young women from Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna and granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite. He also married his cousin, Bazamath, who was the daughter of Ishmael and the sister of Neboath. Adah gave birth to a son Eliphaz for Esau. Bazamath gave birth to a son named Reuel. Oholibama gave birth to his son's named Jewish. Jalem, and Korah. All these sons were born to Esau in the land of Canaan. You tracking with me? (laughs) Esau took his wives, his children, and his entire household along with his livestock and cattle. All the wealth he had acquired in the land of Canaan and moved away from his brother, Jacob. There's not enough land to support them both because of all the livestock and possessions they had acquired. So Esau, also known as Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. Now, the next verses I'm about to read, verses 9 to 30, they tell us a story. And I know it's not exactly obvious as we're reading just a bunch of names and sons of this and that and this, but it's telling us a story. It's telling us the invasion of Esau's descendants followed by absorbing this certain people group into their population. As they're in this place called Seir, we're going to read that as these descendants of Esau, they are, they're having children, but then they're, they're taking over places in Seir and taking over clans of people. Verse 9. This is the account of Esau's descendants. I'll show you um, where the takeover continues. It'll be verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18. So, But I'm going to read starting in verse 9. This is the account of Esau's descendants, the Edomites, who lived in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife Adah, and Reuel, the son of Esau's wife Basemath. The descendants of Eliphaz were Timan, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnad, the concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, gave birth to a son named Amalek. These are the descendants of Esau's wife Adah. This is why family trees are good to have. You just look at them and tracks us. The descendants of Reuel were Nahath, Zerah, Shama and Mizah. These are the descendants of Esau's wife, Bazimath. Esau also had sons through Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, granddaughter of Zibion. Their names were Jehosh, Jalem, and Korah. These are the descendants of Esau who became the leaders of various clans. The descendants of Esau's oldest sons, Eliphaz, this is the verse. It will say it three times in three sections, the takeover became the leaders of the clans of Timan, Omar, Zepho, and Canaz. So when they became the leaders of clans, it's not just like, hey, can we be leaders of your clan? Archaeologists and biblical scholars say there's probably a hostile, violent takeover of these clans. This is what's happening. So Eliphaz became the leaders of the clans of Timan, Omar, Zepho, Canaz, Korah, Gatim, and Amalek. These are the clan leaders in the land of Edom who descended from Eliphaz. All these were descendants of Esau's wife, Adah. The descendants of Esau's son, Reuel, again it says, became the leaders of the clans of Nahath, Zerah, Shama, and Mizah. These are the clan leaders in the land of Edom who descended from Reuel. All these were descendants of Esau's wife, Bazimath. And final time, verse 18. The descendants of Esau and his wife, Oholibamah, became the leaders of the clans of Jewish, Jalem and Korah. These are the clan leaders who descended from Esau's wife, Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These are the clans descended from Esau, also known as Edom, identified by their clan leaders. These are the names of the tribes that descended from Seir, the Horite. They lived in the land Edom, Lotan, Shobal, Zibia, and Anna, Dishon, Azer and Dishon. These were the Horite clan leaders, the descendants of Seir, who lived in the land of Edom. The descendants of Lotan were Horai, Heman, Lotan's sister was named Timna. The descendants of Shobal were Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. The descendants of Zibion were Aya, Ana. This is the Ana who discovered the hot springs in the wilderness while he was grazing his father's donkeys. The descendants of Ana were his son Dishon and his daughter Oholibamah. The descendants of Dishon were Hemda, Eshbon, Ithron, and Charon. The descendants of Ezer were Bil'an, Zavan, and Akan. The descendants of Dishon were Uz and Aran. So these were the leaders of the Horat clans, Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, Dishan. The Horat clans are named after their clan leaders who lived in the land of Seir. Now this isn't a typical section where you uh, memorize or have on a coffee mug. <laughs> we continue. We press forward. Then now, the following verses, verses from 31 to 39, are not a genealogy. They're actually a list of the eight kings who reigned in Edom. So these do not have any gene- genealogical um, value with Esau. But these are the kings, and this is how the chapter ends. These are the kings who ruled in the land of Edom before any king ruled over the Israelites. Bela, son of Be'ar, who ruled in Edom from his city, Dinaba. When Bela died... Jobab, son of Zerah from Basra, became king in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, from the land of Temanites, became king in this place, in his place. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, became king in his place and ruled from the city of Abith. He was the one who defeated the Midianites in the land of Moab. When Hadad died, Samlah, from the city of Masrekah became king in his place. When Samlah died, Shaul, from the city of Rehoboth on the river became king in his place. When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, son of Akbor became king in his place. When Baal Hanan, son of Akbor died, Hadan became king in his place and ruled from the city of Pau. <coughs> his wife, Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred and granddaughter of Mezahab, these are the names of the leaders of the clans descended from Esau who lived in the places named for them Timnah, Alva, Jeheth. Oholibama Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timan, Mibzar, Magdil, Naram. These are the leaders of the clans of Edom, listed according to their settlements in the land they occupied. They all descended from Esau, the ancestor of the Edomites. We'll be having a test on all of these names after this. You will be receiving a timbit if you do recall all of them. So Esau's descendants are enemies of God. Why? Because Esau chose to marry a group of people prohibited. He was prohibited to marry the Canaanite women. He married Canaanites. And this decision this decision, would cut his descendants off from God's chosen people and God's promised land. And the Edomites would become enemies of God's people. We read in Obadiah, verse 10, Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. Jeremiah, verse 40, or chapter 49, verse 17, Edom will be an object of horror. All who pass by will be appalled and will gasp at the destruction they see there. Esau disobeyed God and was not willing to repent. Esau disobeyed God and was not willing to repent. The reality of the scripture is, is that those who are not willing to repent are cut off from God. Those who are not willing to repent will be cut off from God. And this is the last we hear of Esau. This is the last we hear of Esau. Have you repented from your ways and followed God? We are either for God or we are against Him. We are the for God or we are against Him. I'm not asking for perfection. That is not what Scripture asks for either. But direction. What is your life? Who is your life aimed at? Have you repented from your ways and followed God? And as we read, we've done now chapters 35 and 36. And we must remember that they're not primarily about Jacob and Esau nor is the Bible primarily about us. We are not the heroes of our own story. We are not the heroes of our own story. God is. That's why in chapters 35 and 36, every chapter before and after, and the whole Bible is about El Shaddai, Almighty God, who renews sinful people and fulfills His word amidst our rebellion. And we must choose to follow God alone. We must choose to obey His commands. We must choose to be renewed by God Almighty. We must. We must. And how is God renewing the world? How will He ultimately renew the world? There's a glimpse of it of a promised king that would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 35, verse 11, God says, You will become a great nation, even many nations. King, kings will be among your descendants. And Esau's descendants would try to kill this king. Esau's descendants... And Jacob's descendants are enmity. They're enemies. It was a king, an Edomite king, known as Herod the Great, who would try to exterminate, who actually exterminated many, if not all of the babies in Bethlehem, nearly 2,000 years ago, in an attempt to kill the king of kings. You can read that in Matthew chapter 2. King Herod was of the Edom lineage. And he tried to kill the king of kings. The reason he tried to kill and successfully did with many of these babies is because there's this promised king coming and this king didn't want this king to live. This king is Christ Jesus. The king of the Jews. The king of kings. The king of the cosmos. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's unstoppable plan To renew the world to himself as the way it was supposed to be. God came down in the flesh, and the plan to renew the world lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we proclaim to every man, woman, and child. Follow the king, we say. We say that in India. Singapore, Korea, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Yukon, everywhere across our our country, everywhere in America. Follow the King. Repent and follow the King. Jesus Christ is the answer in renewing the cosmos, the universe, our lives. And what are we to do? How are we to respond to this news? Do you know Him? Do you follow Him? If you do... If you do, Romans 12, verse 2, is part of our journey with the King. It says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I'm reading now from the English Standard Version. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our job is to know the will of God who has revealed himself in his word, and we do so by the scriptures. The scriptures is where we are to press into. Digging into it, praying about it. We are to be in scripture and in prayer. That is my only application. That should be my application for every sermon. Be in scripture and be in prayer. And I'm going to quote what we heard, uh, what Brent and I, when we were down at the conference in L.A., He's talking about a story of his wife, uh, Charo, and she was working in um, the Andes Mountains. And whenever people would ask him for, her, for advice, they would ask Charo for advice, she'd always say, be in scripture and be in prayer. Be in the scriptures and be in prayer. Be in the scriptures and be in prayer. That sh- she would continue to say that again and again. And somebody asked her, Charo, Charo, why do you keep saying... You must be in prayer and you must be in Scripture. You're just sounding like a a broken record. Why Why do you keep saying that? And she answers, because. You must be more in the Scriptures and in prayer. We are to follow the King of Kings in His Word. If you do not know Him, I pray that at this moment, this day, if it's for the first time, you would come to the King of Kings through His Word and on His terms. He's inviting you to Himself. He says, come to Him for renewal of your life, for renewal of attitude, for renewal of your soul, to the goal of worship. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this day. Lord, would Your, would your Word transform and renew our minds that we would follow You. We would follow You in the thick and in the thin. For Your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen.